I've got big plans this weekend, and they all revolve around my Lodge cast iron skillet. Friday night fish tacos, Saturday supper shrimp gumbo, Sunday morning egg scrambles. Lodge Manufacturing of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee has kept everyone from my grandma to professional chefs to weekend warriors busy for over 100 years. Their cast iron, along with their enamel and their stoneware, just can't be beat. For helping keep our bellies full and for supporting this podcast, we thank them. Home-cooked, healthy meals are necessary for happy, thriving families. Or so I've been told, again and again and again. What if you don't have the time to make those mythical meals, or the money, or the abilities? These are important questions to ask in a year that SFA focuses programming on the labor of food, the work of food. They're also important questions to ask in an office like ours, where I'm the only boy among women. (laughs) And John T., I have a confession. I am so jealous of your life as a cook. You are a special occasion cook. Your cooking life is the stuff of whole hogs and roasted turkeys. My cooking life is random Tuesday cook, which means sad pastas and salads with two ingredients. I'll be over on Wednesday. <laughs> Let the record reflect, in addition to sighing, Melissa shook her head. Whatever pressure I feel to produce supper on a Tuesday night, the reality is we earn enough money to have choices. We can order out, we can buy a roast chicken at the market. Better yet, I'll make a reservation on the square. But for cooks without those options, the pressure can be unbearable. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 Production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Our producer, Irina Zhirov, tells us a lot of women are struggling to feel good about their cooking life. Ramira is a single mother living in southeast Raleigh, North Carolina. Ramira is not her real name, but an alias sociologist Sarah Bowen gave her when she interviewed her in 2012. At that time, Ramira was 23, and her children were ages 5, 2, and 10 months. The tape quality isn't great, so it's kind of hard to hear, but Sarah asks, do you cook every night? Do you cook every night? Yes, I do. And how long does that usually take? If it's a quick meal, 30 minutes. I mean, it ranges. It all depends on how busy we are, what time I get in the house at the end of the day, because if I get in at 8, 8 o'clock and I'm pooped and I know the kids got to go to bed at 9, I just try to make something really fast and I just let us go. We eat, we go to sleep, pass out. Like many mothers, Ramira works to keep her kids fed, fed well, while juggling a million other obligations. But cooking, it always kind of stays a priority. I like to cook because of the togetherness it brings, but I don't like to cook because of the hard work it is. Sarah Bowen, the sociologist, is an associate professor at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. She spent several years talking to moms like Ramira, figuring out what they eat and how they cook. And what she learned, after interviewing more than 100 women and joining some of them as they shopped for groceries and cooked and attended to their kids, is that women are expending a lot of energy to prepare home-cooked meals. 
They're doing it because everybody's got to eat, yes. But also, Sarah says, because a meal is more than just sustenance. We have this Norman Rockwell-like image that we need to bring everyone together at the end of the day. And not only that, but the food has to be right. It needs to be fresh, whole, local foods made from scratch, prepared with care. It needs to be eaten happily with good conversation. No food fights, no picky kids, no, no dinnertime squabbles, and, and no shortcuts in terms of the food. Sarah, along with sociologists Jocelyn Brenton and Seneca Elliott, wrote a book called Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It. They write that this Norman Rockwell-like image suggests that home-cooked meals carry a moral weight, the idea of you are what you eat. Seneca, who teaches at the University of British Columbia, says there's a long history to how we got here. We see some anxiety about the role of food and human morality in the 1800s. That's when industrialization and urbanization started to rapidly change society. There was a concern about whether people would be good people with good values when they you know, started living in these big anonymous cities or when their work became production-oriented, people became cogs in the system. There was a real fear about the market kind of encroaching on um, family and home life. And family meals kind of emerged over time as an anecdote to these fears. Maybe the family isn't spending all day together working on the farm, but there's still dinner. Messages about the importance of family meals came in the form of public service propaganda as well as advertisements. It's fun to eat supper with your family, especially when there is good food on the table. The family dinner became this kind of symbolic ritual, a place where families could then pass along um, important values and also just a place to affirm the moral role of the family. Housekeeping still remains the most important business of the world. Each woman faces it single-handed. She must know how to cook, no food. And interestingly, middle-class women played a big role in this push to kind of carve out this protected space of the family and domesticity in order to say that women had an important role to play in this new society, and that role was going to be to be the moral arbiters at home. Hey, Mom, the gang's here for lunch. Ready in a minute. And women are really expected to be the ones that are, are maintaining that cozy, nurturing moral place, and, and food is, is a big part of that. And there's evidence that there's been a ratcheting up of the demands around family dinner. Then in the 1960s and 70s, more and more women started to get jobs outside of the home. Today, about 60% of women participate in the labor force. That number is actually higher for mothers. 70% of moms with children under 18 work. That includes the sociologists themselves, who are all mothers. I ask how they handle cooking in their families, and it turns out for two of them, who have young children, their husbands are actually the primary cooks. And while men are helping out at home more than they have historically, the labor of feeding and caring for the family has stayed largely within the mother's realm of responsibility. Today, moms have to think about nutrition, about whether to buy organic, local, sustainable. They have to contend with the constant flood of food media telling them that they too can and should prepare the beautiful spreads they see. 
The cooking is fun and deeply good. Today's food propaganda comes largely from popular food personalities, like Michael Pollan and Nigella Lawson. It doesn't really matter whether I've got time on my hands and I can cook slowly and leisurely, or if I'm really up against it and have to do frantically fast meals. The thing is, if I'm in the kitchen, I'm happy. What predicted a healthy diet more than anything else is the fact that it was being cooked by a human being and not a corporation. Here's the thing, though. In this country, there's a real disconnect between what the media or food experts are saying that it should look like and what they're saying we should do and then what everyday average American families are actually able to do. There's a, there's a real disconnect between those two things. That's Jocelyn Brenton. She's one of the pressure cooker authors. She teaches at Ithaca College. She says all mothers care about their kids and most have a working knowledge of nutrition. But there's this whole litany of issues linked to class and race that makes cooking complex and fraught both logistically and psychologically. This is especially true for low-income women. Sarah and I get in her car at the NC State campus and head east. Within a mile, there's a store. So we're, we're driving by a, a fresh market. It's a, it's a really fancy grocery store. I almost never go there because it's so expensive. Close by is another food market. Then we pass an apartment building still under construction, which will have yet another grocery store on the ground floor. So now we're downtown. Here, we turn south. Um, so we are in Ramirez neighborhood. We can see downtown from here. Downtown is right there. The buildings practically tower over the neighborhood's neat bungalows and low apartment buildings. But in some respects, the nice restaurants and easy access to groceries seem a world away. We pass by the Ship of Zion Church and notice a truck parked out front. It's a church, sort of a food pantry, but they're but focused mostly on fresh produce that people are taking home with them. I find Pastor Christopher Jones inside the intimate nave. He says the truck with the food is out there every week and has been for close to 20 years. When I was driving into the church, I would see people walking from the food line, which is about seven miles away, to get back to the neighborhood. And so, um, you know, I saw fit that we needed to do something about that. The area had an affordable grocery store, but it closed down. So this is important for the residents here. A woman named Miriam, we're using her first name only, is picking up food. Um, I got some potato salad, some yogurt, apples, bananas, grapes bread, and um, sandwich meat. She cares for her two young daughters and a nephew. She says without the service, she'd struggle to feed them. Oh, yes, definitely so. I wouldn't have enough for the rest of the month. Many of the women the sociologists interviewed live in this neighborhood, and many of them struggle with the economics of feeding their families. Take Ramira. I couldn't talk to her because the sociologists promised to preserve her anonymity, but she did allow me to use the tapes they made during interviews. Ramira receives food stamps, 600 some dollars per month for her family of four. She doesn't have a car, so on the day she receives her money, she takes a bus out to the Walmart where she can stretch her funds. The food stamps are good, she says. But I feel like it does target towards the cheaper brands of food, which is fine, but it's hard because they're not really health oriented. They don't. It's not healthy food. And 
The healthier the food is, the more expensive it is. If she could, she says she'd buy organic milk and lots of salads and vegetables. Instead, Ramira buys a lot of frozen food, cans, items with shelf stability. She says she can't risk wasting perishables. She takes a cab back from the store with her groceries. And that's it for the entire month. It's her one grocery run. Ramira likes to cook. She learned how from her grandmother. My grandmother influenced me a lot. She's the one that raised me. I mean, she's the one that taught me how to make chicken. She's the one that taught me how to make spaghetti. I make it just like her. But as with a lot of moms, lack of time makes it a chore. Being a single parent, always have to prepare. You know, I always have a thousand other things to do. It's hard to really come together to even do a big meal like I want because there's so many other things I have to worry about. I have to get their clothes out for the next day. I have to get them in the shower or tub so they could go get ready for bed. I have to clean the house. I have to do my homework. Ramirez is in school four days a week studying hotel management. She says at least once a week she has appointments, doctors, food stamp recertification, things that can take hours as a sociologist talks to her, she's balancing the interview and the baby. Usually, like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm running. We just run, 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 We heard from a lot of the moms in our study that they liked cooking in theory. This is Sarah again. And they liked it sometimes, like, on a Sunday when maybe they had a little extra time to cook, that they could find joy in that but the relentlessness of sort of the weekday rush and the kids who are getting hangry and crying and you're trying to make dinner and you're tired and you ran out of this that's hard Ramira has to take the bus everywhere and she explains that the buses aren't reliable sometimes she gets home at six sometimes at eight it's nearly impossible to plan dinner when you don't know how long you have to cook it for a lot of poor and working class families in the study, unpredictability came from their jobs. They worked in service jobs like fast food or, or something like that where their schedule changed from week to week. They often didn't have stable childcare, so they were also scrambling for childcare. There are other reasons cooking and cooking healthy is not easy. It presumes a certain kitchen, Sarah says that it's pest-free and has counters and working appliances and tools. There were lots of families that didn't have a colander, didn't have a basic large pot, or didn't have a sharp knife, and those things make it really hard to cook. There were lots of families, including Ramirez, that didn't have a kitchen table or enough chairs for everyone to sit down. So when you, when you say you need to gather everyone around the table, no one's thinking about whether there is a table. And yet, all moms... Poor moms, middle-class moms, rich moms, listen to and absorb the same rhetoric. You are what you eat and what you cook. This is part of how inequality works. This is Seneca. You make everyone anxious about their children's well-being and futures, and you put the onus on individuals to get it right in this competitive and uncertain um, society. And then what you get are people who feel a lot of pressure bearing down on them and possibly a sense of inadequacy, a lot of anxiety um, about getting food right. I'm Melissa Hall here with John T. Edge. I'm privileged to have options and wiggle room for how I feed my family. But Irina tells us that middle-class moms, many of them like me, 
are still feeling really anxious. First, this though. Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. For low-income moms, money was at the root of so many challenges around cooking. Affording groceries, finding rides to the store, buying cooking tools, finding time to prepare meals. Surely middle-class moms had an easier time of it, right? Their lives were not as precarious as the um, working class and, and poor mothers that we talked with. This is Jocelyn again. There's a big but here. You would think that middle-class mothers, because they have more resources, more money, um, sometimes you know higher levels of education, you would think that things would be going a little better for them in terms of feeding their kids. And that wasn't the case. Jocelyn focused largely on middle-class moms for the study. She says for many poor moms who were food insecure, the primary goal was making sure their kids had enough to eat. And then they thought about whether it's healthy enough. Middle-class mothers had some different goals because they were getting their basic needs met. They were very focused on being a good parent through what they were feeding their children. But that, it turns out, was still a nerve-wracking process. Jocelyn was pregnant herself when she was conducting interviews with the mothers. And sometimes she'd find herself reacting to the relatively privileged mom's anxieties. Sometimes I felt myself getting annoyed and then sometimes I just sort of felt myself thinking, um, gosh, I, I'm one of those moms, too. I feel this, too. One mom in particular made her reckon with the stress these moms experience. Greeley is one of the white, middle-class moms Jocelyn spoke with. That's not her real name. Greeley was a mom who cares deeply about food in a very specific way. If there's a spectrum of moms and on one end of the spectrum is a mom who's like, look, it's all good. I want to make sure my kids get enough food. If they have a candy bar now and then, it's fine. Let's relax, people. And then the other end of the spectrum is moms who are spending so much of their mental time and energy and deep emotional work caring about food. A lot. And this would be Greeley. Greeley and her husband have one daughter. She wanted her family to eat organic, local, sustainably produced food. In reality, her family couldn't afford that produce. In addition, she and her husband both worked, and they struggled to prepare daily meals from scratch like she wanted. In an effort to be more efficient, she tried to do weekly meal prep. And then she described one single day, and that day her husband ha had to stay late at work, and uh, her parent came into town, and like one other thing happened. So the whole house of cards came tumbling down. She couldn't actually soak the black-eyed peas that night. So then the next day, what are they going to have? And as she's describing all of this, it really just struck me that Greeley's that person that's doing it right, according to what the experts say, right? She's got financial resources. She's trying to be smart with her time by planning. And that was one of those big moments for me as a researcher where I just 
it really dawned on me how it's just not going to work to keep asking mothers to do more because Greeley is the epitome of that mother who is just drawing upon all of her financial and, and resources and her education to try to feed in this way that she's um, told she should feed and it's just still falling apart and she feels exhausted and she feels guilty. Jocelyn interviewed another middle-class mom named Ray. Ray's African-American and, like Greeley, thinks constantly about food. At the time we were doing the interview, she really wanted her family to get healthier. She has many family members who have diabetes or weight-related problems, and she felt like this was something that the black community specifically faces, and so she was acutely aware of that. But her husband wouldn't eat the supposedly healthier food she was trying to cook for him. Things like brown rice instead of white rice and gravy. Her choices in the kitchen made her think about race and cultural heritage and what exactly she wanted to pass down to her son. Was it healthy eating habits or a family recipe for something like fried chicken? Seneca says food is never neutral. It's imbued with meaning. So when choosing what to eat, nutrition is just the beginning. Fried chicken is seen as uh, stereotypically black food and is seen as unhealthy. Broccoli or asparagus, one of our participants talked about asparagus as kind of a white people's food, which was seen as really healthy, but, you know, ooh, do you want to eat that, right? So these sorts of ways that race, class, and gender kind of come together to construct ideas and meanings around food and what we should be eating and shouldn't be eating even further complicate this challenge of how we feed our children, how we feed ourselves, and how we perform as good mothers in um, this kind of contested food terrain. And so what the researchers walked away with is that really nobody has it figured out, themselves included. Here's Sarah. If we believe collectively that food matters, that we think it's important that people have access to good food, however they define it, that instead of just telling moms to do better, we need to actually support families and help them. You know, fix wage stagnation, expand food stamps, invest in school lunches, easy things like that. But I also think we need to decouple the idea that being a good parent or a good mother or being a happy family means eating a certain way. That idea, says Sarah, just exacerbates inequality and makes everyone miserable. Today, Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zhorov of Boone, North Carolina. You'll notice a pattern here. This season's stories all come from her new home state. Special thanks go to who, Melissa? We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam, Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. And audio engineer Charlie Kyer makes the show sound good. Look for Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It, published by Oxford University Press in March 2019. To get another SFA take on the subject, read Jennifer Cole's essay, A Ghost in the Freezer, a tribute to her grandmother's obsession with putting up and laying by. That's at southernfoodways.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us ladle gravy in your ears.